into caping and grew up playing basketball with a dad in upstate New York before going on to play Division I ball for Colorado University in Boulder, then do a stint as a pro upon graduating. But all the while, another passion was brewing, and that was writing. It had actually taken hold in her early teens, but really had taken a back shelf to sport. And finally, it was kind of clamoring to take center stage. So Kate walked away from a career playing basketball and into a career as a journalist, starting at a small local paper, eventually working her way into a position at the Philadelphia Inquirer, covering the Sixers before landing at ESPN as a columnist, as a features writer, and eventually an on-air personality where she stayed for about seven years before just recently leaving. Behind the scenes, Kate was also grappling with her own sexual identity, kind of fearful that coming out might affect her professional opportunities and also yearning to devote more energy to bigger, more meaningful stories. And this led to her first book, The Reappearing Act, where she shared her sort of coming out story, followed three years later by a massive New York Times bestseller called What Made Maddie Run, which is this deeply revealing, upsetting, but ultimately powerful and important look at how life as a young college student and athlete can lead to sometimes really horrifying outcomes and how maybe we can all be more vigilant and have tough conversations um, that just might create the space for people who are suffering to find solace. And along the way, Kate also fell in love. She got married a few years back and learned that her father, um, her lifelong basketball pickup game partner has ALS. In today's conversation, we explore all of these moments, how she made these changes, what was going on in the conversation in her head and her heart, along with also an unexpected but pretty fascinating look at the perceptions and misperceptions of women's professional sports in this country and their relationship with the media and fandom and so much more. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So we're hanging out in New York City. Um, you're down in Charleston right now, but you actually grew up a couple hours north of here. Yes, I grew up in Schenectady. Beautiful Schenectady. Kind Beautiful. of like outside Albany-ish, right? If yeah. I have it right. Yeah, it's outside Albany. My parents now have a place like in Lake George. So like, I, it's one of those places where you appreciate it after. Kind of looking back. Yeah. yeah. At the time, you're like, why do I live so close to New York City, but not in <laughs> New York City? It's like yeah. a tease. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> so close, but so far. Right. Um, and clearly you're into sports at a very young age when you're up there. Yeah. Well, and I was into it just because of my family. My dad played yeah. professional basketball overseas. So we were, you know, you're into it the same way you're into all New York sports. Usually if you're a New Yorker, you know, I don't know if you're into sports or not, but. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I feel like there were windows where you're know, like, I was into the Knicks in the, what, <gasps> the 90s? 90s. 90s, right? When, when Ewing was there. John Starks. Was like, right. You know, like there was that magical window yeah. when it was just kind of astonishing. And I feel like since then, they've kind of been still yeah. trying to figure out, okay, well, who are we to yeah. a certain extent? Yeah. No, I get that. I think they're, I think uh, not that there's an appropriate way to be a sports fan, but the way I like, the way it has happened for me is that there are, just pockets of years where like, I am just so invested in that team, but then the ebbs and flows of life take you away from it. I, I don't I, I don't quite connect with like the 60 year fan yeah. who is in it all the time. I feel like there's different interests and there's, it's you so, come back to it, you go away from it. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because I feel like I'm less connected to the institution of sport or a team and more connected to the personalities or, or just like there's there are those windows where a group of people come together for generally it's a relatively short couple of years yeah. and just something astonishing happens that not just within the team but sort of like at, there's there's a cultural effect yeah it's kind of magical yeah it, especially I think the way basketball has operated yeah. in the last ten years is your window into the the game is usually through a personality or like you said like a coalescing like Golden State Warriors, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you just, through osmosis, you're going to understand what's happening if you live in America. Yeah, no, totally. So coming up, are you more into sport because you, it's genuinely the thing you wake up in the morning to do or is it more like a source of connection with your dad or is it some, kind of like some blend in there? Well, I'm, I'm part of the reason why I left ESPN is because like, I'm not into sports right yeah, now. Right. And, but the way I, it, the way it exists in my life now is as a family connection. Right. And the way I would say I became introduced to it was because it was such a huge part of my dad's life. And so who wouldn't want to hop in the car and go, you know, to the gym when you're seven, right? Like, yeah. and shoot baskets. So 
That's how, I mean, that's how I got into it. I mean, I, speaking of sport and all that, I think sports is very interesting because I don't think there's anything in our culture that is as rewarded when you're a kid, if you're good at it. I mean, maybe you could say in certain areas like music could be and, and acting, but for the, in our culture, I think if you're good at sports as a young kid, like your parents are into it, your peers are into it, your teachers are into it. And like, you don't really have to decide whether you love it. You're just like, wow, people think I'm cool if I play sports. And so that was definitely like how I got involved without actually assessing if this was like a passion of mine. Yeah. It's almost like inadvertent athletics. Yeah. You know, um, for, for the, by, by reason of acceptance. My reason of like, okay, so now I, I, I have a role. Like yeah. I know where I belong. Right. You're like, oh, my parents think this is great. I have friends. I don't know if I like this sport, but I really like everything it's giving me. So let's keep, let's do the travel team too. Yeah. It, it's interesting you bring that up also. The, um, we were actually recently out in uh, Boulder taping some conversation that you went to see Boulder. And um, one of the people we talked to was Rosalind Wiseman, who has this, she kind of became burst onto the scene 2002 with a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And she has been touring the world really since then, looking at how kids relate to each other, but also how adults relate to, to young adults. And she's really, really strong feelings about the culture of youth sports and youth athletics, um, both academically, but also the private leagues and stuff like that. Not the greatest opinion of, of a lot of the sort of power dynamics within those sort of like, uh, those windows and, and those those cultures and leagues. Oh yeah. I mean we could we could spend hours on that and the way once you get a little higher up in the game to like the NCAA and how that affects everyone's experience, like the way money is involved and how it affects oh you know, the experience of every student athlete, even if they're a rower, you know, and they're not involved with the billion dollar football industry. Like it still affects their experiences in ways that I, I think people don't understand, all the way down to just the the pay to play model for U.S. soccer. I mean, I don't know how closely you follow, but maybe some of your listeners realize we didn't make the last World Cup on the men's side, and there's a lot of structural reasons for that that you can tie to more than just oh, our best athletes are playing basketball. It's like no, there's like youth league issues, there's coaching issues. It's like so, yes, the the way sports and the way they operate at, at the youth level and the way it kind of infiltrates the psyche of a community is very fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, not to say by definition, it's a bad thing, but it's just the way that sometimes the dynamics unfold mm -hmm. on, you know, in some certain scenarios can be amazingly constructive and supportive and in some scenarios, the exact opposite destructive. So, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've said like wrote an entire book on like yeah. the, the ways and the cultural ways that the experience of young athletes is being undermined. And I, I don't know, there was a recent article by Mary Kane, this, yeah. she was a prodigy female runner who we thought we as an Americans thought would be a possible like gold medalist for U.S. running. And, and we're not like running in America is not the same as it is in other countries in terms of like our performance. But anyway, so she, she just had an article about just her downfall when it came to like her coaches wanting her to be thinner. And this was at like the Nike elite level. So yeah, there's, I always try to remember all of the benefits of sport, especially when you get too far wrapped up in, all of the ways in which kids can be haunted by their experiences with sport. Yeah. And I think we're going to circle back about that, that to a certain extent, because I want to talk about the book that you wrote around that, your second book. Um, let's fill in a little bit of the 
journey yes. before there. You do end up at CU playing ball. What was that like for you, just your experience there? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but in terms of how you felt like you, the role that it gave you, the sense of belonging, the sense of, or not belonging, or maybe both simultaneously as you're sort of like moving through that season. Yeah. I would say playing, so I played division one basketball. Right. And I say this when I talk to kids now, like high school kids, I'll be like, I'm, I'm so glad that I continued on and finished my career playing college basketball. But one, it remains to this day, the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. And two, if I were a freshman right now, starting at the beginning of that experience, I'm not sure that I would continue with it, knowing what it's like, knowing all of the pitfalls of it. So it's a complicated answer because I think, I think so much of who I am now is a result of perseverance and clearing obstacles and dedication to craft and the, all of the lessons you learn in that process. But it was also a really challenging time period because of, um, just because of the way the, the, let me be as specific as possible. It's like for my specific experience, like that it was at that time when I was realizing I was gay too. And like being in the world of women's college basketball or women's sports, when you think you're gay is actually counterintuitive because you would think like, Oh, a lot of, you know, stereotypically like, Oh, a lot of gay female athletes are gay. So it should be this like big old gay thing happening, but then you're inside of it and there's just so much closeting. There's so much fear over being in reinforcing a stereotype. So anyway, there's there was a lot of lessons that I took away from that that like affected me for like the next decade of my life in terms of like and I now now I'm down a path that you might not have even wanted to go down, but in terms of like I'm actually I mean yeah. I think it's a really interesting thing to explore because I know yeah. like part of what was going on is you weren't out at the time and at the same time a lot of the people on your team you sort of had had and this was ended up being the subject of your first book. You yeah. had ended up sort of like rolling in with a group of people who were also very religious, mm -hmm. but they were also key players in the team, which creates like this really funky tension. Yeah. And I always remind people when I talk about it, like I went to CU Boulder. Like I didn't go to, it wasn't a Christian college. It was when we were there and probably since like the number one party school in America. But it just so happened that when I, like while I was there, like four or five of my teammates kind of caught the fundamentalist Christian bug and started Bible studies were happening twice a week. And I'd never really explored religion before because I'd grown up Catholic and my parents weren't dedicated to going every week. And so I didn't really even understand like, oh, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Like I didn't understand even that as a concept, you know, because you could go to a lot of Catholic masses and not actually know what's happening. <laughs> So anyway, so I never explored religion. So I found myself like kind of falling in with, you know, with the fundamentalist Christian crowd while at the same time going through like an internal reckoning of who I was. And so those two collided. And as you mentioned, like I wrote about that dynamic and how it like affected me going forward. Yeah. It, it is weird when you look back at windows like that and you're like, okay, so there was a lot of pain, but there was also a lot of learning. And it's sort of like, if you... I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, like this question where like, if you're, if you're pretty good with where you are at this moment in life, mm -hmm. you know, um, and part of that, part of that angst, that pain, that suffering, whatever that was, 
is part of what got you to this exact moment and you're really good with it. You know, like, would you go back and change it? Not that anyone can ever really answer those questions, mm-hmm. but um, while you're uh, playing in college, um, where does writing start to show up? Or had it already showed up earlier in your life, but it wasn't the main thing? Yeah, I had always wanted to be a writer. And I had, and I remember there was this moment where UConn women's basketball was like a huge deal when I was growing up and they went undefeated and won the national championship. Yeah, I remember that. And they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And so I must have been like 12 maybe. And I remember when it came, because I just never seen like a female athlete on the cover of a magazine. And I like read the article and it was one of those articles where, you know, you began, you begin with an anecdote and then at the end you tie it all back around. Right. And at that time, like I wasn't consuming a lot of like journalism. So I didn't know that this was like the device that everyone used, but I thought this is the most genius thing that's ever happened. And so I remember like going down to my mom and being like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to be a writer, just like, you know, holding up the little the uh, Sports Illustrated magazine. So like I had always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write books. I, in college, I basically majored in basketball. I mean, I the major I had was like interpersonal communications, organizational communications. I wasn't, I didn't decide my school based on a major. Like I had this idea that I wanted to be a writer, but, and I'm kind of grateful for this now. I wasn't caught up like the way a lot of young people are now that well, I have to have everything planned. I have to have my major coincide with what my plan is for post-graduation. I didn't really think that way at all. I was just like, I'm playing basketball is what I'm doing here. And like, maybe vaguely there's this idea of writing, but I don't need to be pursuing it right now, which actually seems kind of, seems in retrospect, very healthy mm. to like yeah. enjoy the college experience and focus on the thing I was doing instead of like constantly game planning for the future. Um, but I, but when I was done playing, I I wanted to write books. I wanted to write fiction, but just financially speaking, I needed a game plan that included a paycheck. So there's that. There's that. <laughs> really? But you also, yeah. I mean, you were writing in college, right? Because you had the Fagan files. Going, I, you know? How do you know these things? Oh, no, the Fagan files. I'm sure you've read the entire volume of the Fagan files. Of course, every everybody word. knows. I mean, would we're going to make descri- that into a book. Describe what that was, because it's kind of <laughs> interesting. Well, so this would have been 2000, yeah. so almost 20 years ago. So blogging wasn't really a thing yet. Right. Obviously the internet was a thing, but not a big thing. And the, the, our sports information director who like worked with our team to like liaison with the media asked me if I wanted to write like the equivalent of like a team diary, like take people on the road and like write little 500 word insights so that people who followed our team, you know, the couple thousand people who come to every game could like read our, my dispatch from, right. you know, Waco, Texas, when we're playing Baylor. And so I did that for, I think, two years. And so I don't know how many I did. Maybe I did like 25 total. So that was, you know, that was almost kind of like writing a column. So that was kind of my first introduction to what would be like more quote unquote journalism, even though I wasn't. Yeah. Do people, I know- not investigative in any way. <laughs> I know this was back in the day where it was it was kind of harder for people to respond to stuff. Like, it wasn't like a blog where you have comments and there was social media. Did pe- were, were you getting feedback from people on what you were writing? I vaguely remember like diehard fans. Yeah. And maybe there's like there was like 80 to 100 of them who would come to like the pre-meal, you know, almost like a tailgate kind of thing for women's basketball. I vaguely remember some feedback from them, but it was it was very, it was probably more insular, you know, like my teammates would read it. Right. <laughs> I do remember feeling like it was more for my teammates than it was for outside consumption. 
But one thing I know for certain was that, that, well, I don't know for certain, but I don't remember there ever being comments on it because one thing that was really eye-opening to me when I stopped playing basketball and then I got into newspapers is that it took me a really long time being in newspapers, perhaps even all the way until I got to the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I realized that people, generally speaking, thought female athletes in women's sports sucked and were boring. Like, I just did not have that viewpoint because I didn't grow. Nobody could give me that feedback, right? Like, if you're a young female athlete now and you're growing up and there's an article somewhere, there's like 50 comments after being like, yawn, who cares? I mean, seriously, we had to turn off our comments when I worked at ESPNW when we covered female athletes because it would just be the same generic kind of like nobody effing cares, you know, don't stuff this like PC women's sports down my throat. So it like I grew up at a time where like you didn't unless somebody was saying that to your face, you didn't know. Like I went all through my college career, played professionally for a couple of years. And I thought people thought we were great. <laughs> like I thought I was as respected as the male athletes. And now I just like I almost feel for female athletes now, like young ones, because that whole illusion is, has been shattered. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you either read or saw or heard something that like the moment, like it, it became clear, like, oh, wait. <laughs> it was, it was um comment. I mean, it, it's not like I'm like, oh man, I was sitting in this, you yeah. know, it, it's not that crystal to me, but I think I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer and I covered the Sixers for them. Right. But so, so you- you come out of school, it's cut, you, yeah. you play pro, you're in Ireland for a little and then you come back and you've got like small papers and then you land at the Yeah, Inquirer. yeah. Right. Sorry, we'll give the quick yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, right. So played we some up. ball, worked at a bunch of newspapers and I got this break and I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer and I was covering the Sixers and it was pro, like, it was some of my colleagues there were covering high school sports and it was a women's, probably like a sectional or state or whatever they have in, in Pennsylvania game women's soccer. And I remember kind of just, I always, I always thought it was really enlightening to scroll through the comments. I know a lot of people are like, stay away from the comments, but I think there's a lot of good information in comments a lot. Mm. And so I was reading through the comments of like this girl's state soccer title. And I, all they were, were like, like diehard Philly Eagles bros. Right. Like, and I, that was when I remember being like, wait, is this an anomaly? Like, is this just like a couple people spammed this page? And so over the next couple of months, I read all of the ones that had to do with female athletes. And it was, and they weren't like the same selection of commenters. It was like always the same kind of comments, regardless of where you looked. And that's kind of when I realized it. Yeah. It feels like I was so naive, but I mean, it was, this was only like 10 years ago. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Um, I mean, when that dawns on you, when you're like, oh, oh, wait. Yeah. Like there's this whole thing and perception that's out there um, that I've been completely ignorant to essentially, like or shielded from or just like, because I wasn't looking at this stuff. What do you do about that at that point? Or, or do you, actually the bigger question in my mind is, do you feel that you have a sense of enough power to even do anything about it in that moment? In that moment, no. Yeah. The only power I always felt like I had was like vowing to myself, you know, when you're in a bar and the WNBA is on and like some, someone makes like the, like, get this trash off here. Like you vow to yourself, like, you know, even if it's socially embarrassing, like I'm, I'm not, I'm going to stand up to that. But what from like that quote unquote moment going forward, I really spent a good part of my ensuing career trying to understand why that perception exists 
because for coming for, uh, coming to this problem in my mind a problem as someone who played division 1 basketball played pro knew a lot of nba players knew obviously the players at colorado some of whom went on to play pro and it it all felt to me like we all understood the respect we had for one another the game didn't feel different to me i'm like why is this why is there this perspective and so i spent a good amount of time like at espn looking at like the data and the research around media and like a lot of academic insight into the moments in time where women's sports or female athletes do transcend and why they transcend in those moments and why in other, why for the rest of time, usually they're ignored. And so, you know, we could probably spend like two hours dissecting like a lot of what I've learned and that whenever I'm talking to like, whenever we get down this path, if I'm talking to young girls or people who are interested and I try to tell them like everything I've learned from behind the scenes in the media world, how all of that affects it. Like it really drove my like thirst to understand why people feel that way. Yeah. So we don't have to go the two hour route. Yeah. You want to go the snapshot route? Yeah. Cause okay. now I'm really curious. Yeah. So very quickly, I think people have this concept that we as a culture like men's sports more than women's sports because men run faster and jump higher. When the reality is that most of us pay attention to sports because of stakes and storylines. And in men's sports, those are proliferated. Like almost anytime you tune into a game, just by existing in our culture, you understand, oh, this is a major league baseball game. This will end in the World Series. And I understand they're being paid millions. Like you just inherently understand the stakes. And also just by existing, you will understand a number of storylines, especially in like the NBA world, baseball world. Like you can't be alive in America and not flip through the Red Sox Yankees game and think, oh, I know the storyline here. You just know it. And so the way I I try and to share with people, I'm like, okay, so if it's all about men jumping high, running fast, like then why do you watch Little League World Series? Why are you really invested in your son's game? Like, I can go watch my nephew play and I'm like riveted because I know him. I know his teammates and I know the stakes. Like they're really important to him. And so like, I think what people don't understand about women's sports is that literally 3% of media coverage is given to female athletes. Mm. So if you're passing through a women's game, why would you stop? Because to you, it's like, it's honestly like you pass through like a Russian language station. You, you don't inherently think to yourself, oh, the mystics are playing the sparks and I know so-and-so is feuding with so-and-so and I want to see how this plays out. Whereas if you flip past a Russell Westbrook, KD, Kevin Durant, like, you know, this beef that exists most of the time, if you're paying any attention to like certain headlines. So that's kind of my like three minute segment on it that like, it's more about stakes and storylines, because if you think about the times where those apply to women's sports, like the Olympics or the World Cup. Yeah you get you know, the highest awesome. ratings yeah. you've ever seen. Right, right, right. Like we're obsessed with women's hockey because they're playing Canada and we all understand the stakes and the storylines. That's so interesting. So, so much of it actually has to do with decisions made within boardroom somewhere about where we're going to allocate our, our attention and our dollars to direct the media. And if only 3% is actually ending up in women's sports, and then essentially we never get the 
the repeat exposure to the stories and the stakes and everything that's unfolding right. to develop some sort of understanding of who the people are, what the yep. stakes are, what the storylines are, what the, so like we can't transfer into that story without having to do a lot of work ourselves to get yeah. there. Whereas on the other side, Bingo. it's like, we're already there. Yeah. So there's no, there's no work that we have to do to get there. That's right. fascinating. Right. And since I'm on my little, my little soapbox now, and what I saw happen from the inside was that at the very top of media companies, there's like this, of course, you know, the president, like, of course we need to devote more time to women. And then there are like, you know, people like me who are like, let's do it. But the people who are making the decisions are making 70 grand a year. They're middle-level producers. All they know is that if we talk about LeBron James, they're going to get that steady rating. And that if they want to introduce a new character, their rating's going to go down for a while until it goes back up. Because you saw that with like, you can see that with Ronda Rousey, right? right. Five years ago when she first comes onto the scene, like you talk about her, people are like, you have to explain her who she is. And then three years later, people are paying $100 to watch a UFC bout that lasts 17 seconds, you know? And you can say Ronda Rousey on TV and like no one's tuning out because they're like, well, what is this? So you could just ran up, you, mm. you, would run up, you would run into this like risk-taking problem where the people who are actually deciding what to put on the air don't want to take risks because they don't want to be the one whose show has a lower rating. Right. And they know right. if they put LeBron on the air, mm. even if you're just watching to be annoyed that it's more LeBron, you're still watching yeah. and you're not ambivalent to it. It's, that, it's so complicated because and in, in a way, it's like you can't really fault those people because at the end of the day, the, the, the decision that they're really making is not, I want more of this and less of that. It's, I have a mortgage. I have, like, I have to, like, first and foremost, the thing that I want to do is do good work and take care of my family or whoever, mm -hmm. whatever it is in the world. So they're making decisions largely based on their ability to, to survive in the world because they know that in that, especially in the media world, it's, you know, one of the unfortunate truths is, is that you tend to be judged by your last biggest success and your last biggest failure. Yeah. Um, so you're like, you're always one production day away or one segment away from either being promoted, staying where you are, or being let go on the next round. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. As a mom of a one-year-old and a three-year-old, I'm always looking ways to simplify my life and make things more efficient. Let's be honest, I need help. One of the things I can outsource is picking out clothes for my kids, which is why I love Stitch Fix Kids. Stitch Fix Kids is an online personal styling service for your kids that delivers children's clothes directly to your door, which makes one less thing on my long to-do list. After completing the style profile quiz, they send a personalized box with 8 to 12 pieces of clothing, shoes, and accessories to try on from the comfort of your home. Stitch Fix gives you quality you can feel and style your child will love. I loved everything they sent for my son. Super soft jeans, polos and tees, and sweatpants that I wish came in my size. Which makes me think, I should probably schedule a fix for myself. You only pay for what you decide to keep. If something doesn't work, just drop the free USPS return envelope into any mailbox. It couldn't be simpler. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. Order fixes when you like or schedule automatic deliveries. There's no subscription required. With Stitch Fix, everyone can look their best. They have solutions for women and men as well as kids available all over the U.S. and now the U.K. Jonathan, tell them the details. So get started today at stitchfix.com slash kids slash goodlife to try Stitch Fix and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. And as a bonus, Stitch Fix will waive the $20 styling fee when you use this show's special URL. 
That's stitchfix.com slash kids slash good life. Stitchfix.com slash kids slash good life. Or just click the link in the show notes now. So I pretty much drink Four Sigmatic elixirs every day, especially now in the cooler weather. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company founded by a group of Finnish fun guys. They're on a mission to popularize functional mushrooms and adaptogens by incorporating them into mainstream products like coffee and tea and cocoa matcha superfood blends. And they make it really easy. They have single serve packets, tins for at home use and K-cup coffee pods. I have so many of their different blends. I, I love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane and chaga. Been drinking it early in the day. And now one of my kind of late afternoon go-tos has been their hot cocoa with reishi mushroom. It's got this earthy cocoa flavor. The reishi is nice and calming. And compared to traditional hot chocolate, it's also a fraction of the calories and has only four grams of carbs and two grams of sugar, making it a pretty solid option for my keto cycles, which I occasionally rotate into the way I, uh, I eat. I often pair it with a bit of macadamia milk too, and it's just super yummy. And I got curious why lion's mane mushroom. Turns out they've long been used by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation, which is pretty cool. And you, our Good Life Project listener, can get 15% off your Four Sigmatic purchase by going to foursigmatic.com slash goodlife and using the code goodlife at checkout. Or just click the link in the show notes and use the code goodlife. I'll give you one more. Yeah, yeah, I got it. So I used to do this. I used to do a couple shows for ESPN. And, you know, the thing about talking about sports on TV is that I don't know a lot about every team. I know to research about what teams I know we're going to talk about. So it's like, we're going to talk about the Baltimore Orioles today. Okay, well, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read about the Baltimore Orioles for two hours. If... During a production meeting, someone fights to get a women's sports story on the air. The response from a lot of like men or women, but mostly men would be like, I don't know anything about that. And what ends up happening is like I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't know anything about the Buffalo Bills and I don't know anything about the St. Louis Cardinals, but I'm going to do a lot of research. And for some reason, there's this barrier when you get a topic about women on the air that a lot of men don't think that it's important enough that they should do the same research. And so then you fight to get like a segment on and then the segment is lackluster because people don't know about it who are talking about it. And so it's not as interesting as something that you're passionate about and you know about. And so it's like this like triple whammy where if someone, because I've fought at times to get segments about women's sports on the air and they sometimes they don't do well because I can't carry them and the people you're supposed to be talking with don't know anything about it. Yeah. And, and it's hard to fake passion in a conversation right. past the first like 30 seconds. Right. <laughs> you got the 30 seconds and then yeah. you're like, well, I actually don't know anyone who plays women's basketball right, except right. for this one person. So now I don't know what to say. Yeah. It's like, where do we go now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Yeah. And then you have like, we've had Abby Wambach in the studio also. Like you have people like her or like any number of people who are, are on, you know, like the, the US women's soccer team. Like it seems like that sport and it has is one of those things that has, in the last five, 10 years, it has really started to transcend. But I'm curious from your lens, do you feel like that's actually transcending and staying? Do you feel like that's even, that's also riding that wave of it's hot for a moment 
And then it kind of goes away again. Well, it, it's still doing that ladder yeah. where it's hot, except if you look back from 1999 until like when they women won the World yeah. Cup in 99 to now, they're staying rele- more relevant, more relevant longer. And so I, I do think that we're going to see if you fast forwarded 20 years, I think you would see the NWSL, their domestic league being increasingly popular. And so that those moments between World Cups and Olympics, there's some staying power for those women. I think, and I, you know, as I mentioned 20 minutes ago, like this, I've been fascinated by the Women's World Cup team for the last 10 years, basically since Abby's header, when she right, legendary. brought us back from <laughs> yeah. the loss to Brazil and that like reignited passion for the U.S. Women's National team that really kind of like saved them from from the edge. Um, and so ever since then, I've been curious, like, why is the U.S. Women's National team relevant and can transcend? And for example, like, do you ever hear anything about the U.S. Women's basketball team? Women's. Yeah, I mean, you know? that, that's why I was curious, because it seems like in this one domain, this one sport, and I wonder if it uh, you're so, pointing, so tell so, me. <laughs> so I think there's a like, cause there's a lot of smart people who like do panels and talk about this yeah. stuff. The WNBA is up against it because they're something like 60% black. Whereas US Women's National Team, like they've got this like, you know, they're mostly white. They've got the girl next door thing going on. Although you'd definitely argue that this iteration of them is a little more subversive for sure. But over the years, if you go back to the Mia Hamm days, like this is the place where like, if you're the all American family and you've got a daughter into sports, you take them to a U.S. women's soccer game. It's like, it's quote unquote family friendly. You know, it's like, it's, it's mostly white. It's mostly safe. It's until recently, mostly straight. And so it's like this all American experience, you know, and I'm using these things in quotes, whereas like what, what women's basketball has is like the quote unquote problem it has is that it's, it's 60% black. It's much more of like an urban sport. You're wearing baggy clothing. So you're not even getting the kind of like femininity that people like to see when you, that you see more of even on the soccer field. And it's kind of, it's almost, it's got this, uh, this aura around it that it's, it's the, if your daughter was playing basketball, when people get really deep into this, this theory, they're like, oh, this is, this is like a subversive actual sport. Cause it's like, you're wearing baggy clothes. It's much more, it, there's many more race issues. So it's like basketball has got a whole lot going on that it has to deal with when it comes to transcending and becoming mainstream on the women's side. Yeah. That's so interesting. So, so bias explicit, explicit and implicit plays a, yeah. a pretty meaningful role in the yeah. difference there. Who knew we would be talking about this today? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> if we go, whatever feels good. That's um, right. Let's jump a bit back more into into your story though. You mentioned you were at ESPN. So so you make the jump from coming out of school, playing pro ball for a bit, then working your way up and and saying, okay, I'm, I'm done with performing as an athlete. And I, this writing bug that's been a part of me for a while, it needs to come take center stage. You end up at the Philly Inquirer covering the Sixers and then other stuff. And then eventually at, at ESPN where you stayed for what, six, seven, eight years? Seven years, yeah. Right, until pretty fairly recently actually. Yeah starting out doing a lot of writing, writing um, and eventually features also. At the same time, and I want to talk more about that. Um, you're also, you mentioned like you're starting to realize in college, you're stepping into like your sexual identity 
And are you the whole time, like the early days until you're at ESPN, are you out at that point or it's still just, it's quiet? I, until I start, I would say when I started at ESPN was when I started testing the waters of whether I could be out professionally in my own mind. What was your concern? I mean, beyond the personal, like you said professionally. So like, what's the tie in there? Well, and personally, I was only out to people I was really close with. I wouldn't have been out, like I wouldn't have been like out at a bar and mentioned that I was gay. Got it. So really what I had, the philosophy I had adopted when I looked around in college was that you separated your professional life and your private life. I mean, there's this thing in women's college basketball where a lot of coaches literally have two closets where one is the clothes that they will wear around parents and administrators. And then the other are the clothes that they will wear out with friends. And it's like this very clear divide that who they are, like truly who they are is not something they're ever going to bring to the workplace. I mean, I used to go through media guides. This has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, but for the longest time, there was not one out female coach in all of women's college basketball, not one. And there's like, there's 380 division one programs. Like there's at least a hundred. If you go assistant coaches too, you know, there's whatever, there's 2000 coaches, not one out. And so I just adopted this, and you, anyway, you'd go through the media guide just to finish that little story and you'd read the bottom part. It's always the part where it's like, Kate lives in Charleston with her wife, Catherine, and their two dogs, right? In every women's college media guide, it would be either, you know, so-and-so is a practicing Christian who's involved heavily in her church, or it would be like, she lives alone. You know, maybe they'd mention the dog, but this is, this is, this is how I thought life worked. If you wanted to not get fired, whatever fired meant to you. And so that's how I lived until I started at ESPN. And it changed when I was at a meeting before I got hired, but I was going to do a freelance story back when ESPN, the magazine was in New York. And, um, I, we, we had the meeting and it was about negative recruiting in college sports, in college ba- women's college basketball, about coaches using anti-gay language to deter recruits from going to a quote-unquote gay program. And um, one of the editors, just like jokingly as the meeting is breaking up, a woman was like, oh, like, you know, we're doing a women's college basketball story and it's, of course, it's about the gays. And she said it so flippantly. And then she didn't, she looked at me and she was like, don't worry, I can say that because I'm I'm gay. And like nobody, this was like mind boggling to me. And it's really crazy to think about it now because I'm so ridiculous, but this was mind boggling. I was like, wait, she, and she was like one of the highest editors there. Like, wait, people know she's gay. Everyone's fine with it. And so that was really the start of me trying to test the waters. Like, like every fifth time, if someone was like, why are you seeing anyone? Like most of the time I'd be like, no, even if I was. And then every fifth time I'd be like, yeah, I'm seeing a woman. Her name is blah, blah, and I'd see how it went. And then I like gradually grew into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, were you like, did you reach a point where you're kind of like, oh, this doesn't really matter? <laughs> Not for a long time. Yeah. Because even when I first started ESPN, I mean, you remember this was like a year or two before 
the Michael Sam getting drafted and then ESPN showing Michael Sam kissing his boyfriend and the uproar. Um, so it was, and at the, I remember I went to the Super Bowl one year and there's one NFL player who, the only NFL player who was willing to publicly say he was an ally, not gay, but just an, willing to be okay with gay people. And I had to like, I went down to the Super Bowl just to like get some time with him to understand how he could say something so bold. So even this was seven, now probably seven years ago, I mean, it was very different even when I first started at ESPN in terms of like how people, consumers of ESPN were willing to talk about it and have that incorporated into their sports vernacular. Yeah. And it's like fast forward to the last year or two with you at ESPN and just the yeah. culture at ESPN, the culture around sports feels like changed in a pretty profound way. I mean, both what yeah. you were doing, what you were, what you were writing about it, at, almost on every level. Yeah. Um, so along the way, you're doing your work, you're, you're writing, you're also on air, mm-hmm. um, which I'm really curious about because being a writer is a very different headspace and wanting to be a writer and the Jones that you get from writing, it's a, it's a, it's a completely different thing than what goes on your head when you're in front of a camera or behind a mic and there are tons of people. It's performance mode versus sort of like in a cave, like making stuff mode. Um, and you had been in performance mode for the entirety of your college career, basically, and probably a bunch of years leading up to that, like as a, like an athlete on a D1 team. You, you made a decision to really step back from that. But when you, and to write, like, like writing, that's my thing. When you end up at ESPN and you're writing, and at the same time, now you're stepping back into performance mode as an on-air personality. How does that, how does that feel to you when you're doing that? At first, I didn't want to do it, TV, and the on-air aspect for that very reason, because mm. I really identified as a writer and I had that almost like the prestige of being a writer, whereas being on air felt like a whole different thing and not as, I, I you know, I'm like, I'm a writer. I'm a, I think thoughts. It's like, I'm a I, writer's writer. Yeah. <laughs> and like being on TV is not that. But then it was like a a few months later, I started, I I would do TV if it was like a one-off thing. You know, there's a story and they wanted someone to comment on it. And then after the the domestic violence scandal in the NFL where Ray Rice punched his then fiance, like I did a bunch of TV hits then. And it felt important because they needed people to be saying actual insightful things about that issue rather than what was on TV then where like ex NFL players were like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with our fantasy running back now. You know, like you just, there wasn't a lot of insight. So, so after that happened, it was like, it kind of came back around. We're like, well, what do you, would you want to do some of our more long-term TV on air? And at that point, I don't know. It felt like inevitable. Like you're, I was working for a TV company. I mean, that's what ESPN is, is a TV company. It's not it's like everything they're writing is to push people to the TV product. Yeah. So, so at first it was challenging and I thought that was really interesting, the challenge of it. But by the end, and, and one of the reasons I left ESPN was that, you know, 
the satisfaction of writing a good sentence could not be matched by spouting off a stat about the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, it was like I was spending so much, it was spending so much time researching for a three minute on air appearance during which I would make predictions that no one would ever hold me to. So it was like two years of my life where I'd like, I'd walk out of a studio having just said, the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win by seven because their quarterback, you know, whatever it was. And it felt so empty. Like, I was like, no one's going to hold me to what I said. No one's going to remember I said it. I don't care about it. And I'm like, and yet I'm doing this thing because I don't, I didn't have an answer for that. And so, I mean, that was, that was why I wanted to leave ESPN because like I had spent a year being like, I need to do less TV so I can get back to writing, but it's like a slippery slope. It would be like, but I, but you also can't have half your brain in a TV appearance and then think you're going to write amazing words. I just, maybe some people could do it, but I couldn't. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting backdrop there is, is what you're writing also, because like there, there's a couple year window where you're, you're researching and then writing the book that comes based on Madison Holleran's story. Um, how does that first come onto your radar? So Maddie's story, the heart of it, you know, happened in downtown Philadelphia. I mean, that is the building from which she jumped and took her own life. And I, I had lived in Philly. And so when, when Maddie died, I was, I was a couple years removed from Philly, but close enough that I still read the papers there. And I remember the day after Maddie died, there was a headline in the Philadelphia Daily News that said, star student jumps to death over grades. And I remember reading that and just was being taken aback by how hollow that sounded to me. And I wasn't even sure if that was like one dimensional. It just felt like not a good enough understanding. And so it was because of, it was because of that. And because I had played college basketball, my sister ran cross country and track at Dartmouth. And I understood, I didn't understand the depth of what Maddie, I assumed had gone through at that time, but I did relate very much to being a freshman division one athlete away from home and just feeling like the experience blindsided you. And so that was really my entry point into being really interested in Maddie's story. And from there as I had an editor at ESPN who, who worked for, who, who came to ESPN from a magazine from 17 magazine. And Maddie had posted an Instagram of a poll quote from 17 magazine. And so simultaneously she had been at 17 and, and after Maddie died, the people at 17 were trying to deconstruct why she had screenshot this poll quote. And I was trying to deconstruct this headline. And so it was kind of like a meeting of the minds there that we both independently, then we met up. I'm like, here's a story I want to work on. And she was like, that's a story I want to work on. And so we, we kind of moved forward together on that. Yeah. So you're, you're, you start to dive into this. Um, the first thing that comes out is this ends up being a big article, sort of like a, fe yeah. a feature article. That's, and it's really what was what was a what was your your what was the big question in your head when you're sort of like saying, "This is what I want to answer in this article." 
well, of course I wanted to answer why. And, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of been the, the driving force of like talking about Maddie's story is trying to convey to people that it, and it's so unsatisfactory, but like, I, I'm, you're never going to have a why. And, and I, and I remember the, the first time I talked to Maddie's best friend, her name is Emma. She said to me, she was like, you know, don't, don't go into this thinking you're going to solve a case that you're going to come up with like the one linchpin catalyst and bring it back to us on a silver platter. She's like, we've all, at that point, Maddie had died like a, a little less than a year prior. She's like, we all did that. Like, you know, the people who loved her, we did the thing where we like searched through everything and we're like trying to find the missing piece here. And so like that, that was the, but no matter, she said that and I still was like, cool. But like, of course I approached the story for the first year I worked on it, like an investigative journalist. I mean, like I went to where she died. I, every, you know, there's graffiti on the wall and I'm like trying to interpret the graffiti. There's like a running store around the corner. And I'm like, you know, asking people there if she like shopped there, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to find the thing. I'm going to find the, the trauma that led to the outcome. And so that drove the story for a long time is just trying to take that headline, that, that one dimensional headline and like get an answer that makes sense. Cause star student jumps to death over grades does not make sense, but you know, and this wasn't the case, but like, you know, was she assaulted at school? Was she, did she have a, you know, a drug problem? And like, there was some huge thing that happened that turned her life on a dime. I, but of course I, like, I just never could find that thing. And so over the years, it's kind of become this story of trying to shed light on all of the variables that were at play. Yeah. I mean, that eventually becomes this much deeper dive and much bigger exploration yeah. that becomes the book, What Made Maddie Run, um, where it's really just a much broader look at, because from there it's like, okay, so let's start with this one story, but then let's, let's kind of look at what's happening systemically with young adults when they hit universities, when with cultures of perfectionism and stress and pressure and um, the mental and emotional anguish that can be like applied from the outside in, but also so many people, like the standards they hold themselves to and what's happening with college campuses and support and availability of counseling and stuff like yeah. that it becomes this much bigger sort of societal deep dive into this moment in time. Yeah, because I think what I learned after the magazine piece came out and it was in ESPN, the magazine, um, you know, and, and that original story, and it was, it was for an ESPN issue called the perfection issue. And the ESPN, the magazine used to do that. They would have the theme issue. And, and so in that magazine, the first magazine piece on Maddie, like we focused a lot on perfection, which is an important thing to focus on. Cause I think a lot of kids fall into this idea of being like a destructive perfectionist where as opposed to other forms of perfectionism, you could actually harness for good use. You know, destructive perfectionism is is one that leads you down often a dark path. But so we focused a lot on perfectionism and Instagram in that original article. But like the weeks after that article came out, I mean, you know, it's like I, I had like hundreds of emails from kids 
and like kids don't email, right? Like high school, college kids, like they're not emailing journalists, but they were emailing about Maddie because just like to a person, it was like, I see some piece of myself in Maddie. Um, and one thing I I heard a lot and I still hear a lot is like, you know, I, the people will be like, I am Maddie, except I'm alive. And so it, it really, after the magazine article, it really opened my eyes to what you're talking about, which is that Maddie's story, although unique to her, is very representative of like young people and the rising rates of anxiety and depression, suicide. I think suicide in colleges has doubled since 2013, which is a stunning statistic. Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. Reading about her story, um, reading about sort of like what's going on within the culture, you know, and 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 as a parent, also having a couple of years ago watched things on TV, um, you know, like Thirteen Reasons Why. Like the, the, I think the biggest fear for so many adults, especially so many parents, is that, um, and I think this is a question everyone tries to answer. It's like, did did I miss something? Like, was there? And this goes back to what you were talking about. Like, was there one big thing that happened that we all missed in some way, shape, or form, or was it? just a confluence of all of these things building up over time. And the question always, I think people wanna know is like, how do I be better at trying to, to see things um, in real time while they're happening so that I can know what to do or can I? And I think that's such, that is the big angst and the big frustration when you hear stories about this. Yeah, and it's, it does cause a lot of anxiety among kids I talk to and parents I talk to because I can tell they want me to say that I know that someone missed something. And then they want me to tell me what that, tell them what that person missed. And so this becomes really tricky because it's the one thing I learned in telling Maddie's story is that the outcome of her life was not inevitable. And I think people tell themselves it was inevitable because they don't want their, they don't want to feel responsible. And so you're kind of stuck in this no man's land where I need to tell people and I need to reinforce that like at any moment, any small thing could have been different at any point in Maddie's life. And probably it would have been small and she'd still be alive today. And yet I can't tell you what that thing is because if I tell you what that thing is, then it's as if I'm as, as if I found the thing to blame. Right. And so, so there is like this, and then it's very anxiety causing because I, it's like, I can point, I could, I can point you to 25 different things that if they had changed in some small way, Maddie would probably still be alive. So, you know, it's like, so I'm trying to answer the unanswerable, but the biggest takeaway I've had in working on this book is that when I go around and I talk to parents and kids too, like there is a deep, deep fear of the word suicide. And that to me, if I had to point to one thing, if I wanting, if I wanted to be a little more present or wanted to ensure that, you know, the people in my life, especially your kids, that you're communicating properly, it's like to try to work through your fear of the word suicide and a discussion about suicide. Because so many parents, and, and this, is, this is true of Maddie's parents too, like didn't know how to engage with the word. And so it was kind of like a, hoping it would go away. Yeah. Well, it's not something you're taught. 
either no. as a kid to a parent or a parent to a kid or, or no. a friend to a friend. No. Um, like you said, there's just this pervasive, like nobody talks about it. Yep. It's a bad thing. Yeah. And it's like, well, we've got people over there in the corner that can help you with that. But like, what kids do you know that like want to go over there into the corner? You know, it's like you, you need to get them there eventually, but like it needs to start at home or in a more accessible way than just, we're not going to talk about that. The, the thing that you want to say, like save it for the person with the white coat. It's like all of that, all of that kind of like reaction. Like if you say the word, it's going to make it more likely. I, I understand subscribing to that belief, but I mean, it's the biggest thing that I, that I think of when I talk to parents now, I'm like, find a way to like, maybe it's research, it's reading, it's figuring out from all the literature, like how you can be willing to say, like, have you ever thought about suicide? Most parents will never ask that question. Mm. When you were, um, when you were doing the research and the writing around this, because um, there are some really interesting similarities between you back in the day yeah. and Maddie. Did you see elements of yourself back when you were in college in her story? So I think, and this is the, you know, this is the one place when it comes to this book and this story where like, I can't tell if I feel like a fraud or not, but like, I truly have been blessed with wonderful mental health. And it's really opened my eyes working on this book, like that, you know, I, I, I really didn't know that everyone woke up and felt differently, right? I just kind of thought everyone woke up and was like, another day, you know, yay. And I didn't know that there's vast arrays. And of course, this seems like common sense, but I didn't know that people wake up and people in my life now who I've had better conversations with who are like, no, I can often not get out of bed or I can't face days sometimes. And like, so when it comes to like the overlap of my story with Maddie's, it's like, I can understand her to a point. I can understand how the environment of division one sports and the environment of going away to school and choosing to do something that you maybe you didn't have passion for. Like I, I understand her in so many different ways, but the one thing I just can't hold on to is like what it would feel like to have that level of like panic and deep depression and live with it for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're deep into this and, and this is, you're doing the research, you're having the conversations, you've got the journalist and the writer's hat on, yeah. this turns into a book. So, and, and this consumes a, a huge amount of you. It has to, to do it justice, you know, because you, you don't commit to writing something like that without being like pretty all in. Oh yeah. And then at the same time, you're like, and I'm on an air on air personality and like making predictions about this and that. So it really, it brings context. Like if we circle it back to that, it's like, okay, so on the one hand, you're, you're developing, like you're committed to your craft. Like you are a writer who really cares about language and you've just spent years telling a deeply human, eye-opening, meaningful story that's having an impact on a lot of people. So it's like, and, and it goes out and then the book explodes, it does really well. So it's like, you see what's possible when you go all in on that world. That's like, it's really interesting. It, it gives really interesting context to the decision that you then made to say, okay, it's kind of like, it's time at ESPN. Yeah, that's very perceptive because that was a huge driving force was seeing how dedicating yourself to a story in this case, the writing process, like actually could have meaningful effect. And like, I'm not 
you know, I'm not acting like it was like all altruism or anything. It was like, it was like, oh, I wrote something that people care about. Like I cared about that part of the story too, in addition to hoping for Maddie's family's sake that like her story would help young kids struggling. But it was like this foundation that I built in working on this book of understanding in a lot of ways what happened to Maddie and one of, like, it was like, I saw every fork in the road that Maddie took. And of course I'm like, you know, I've got like the bird's eye view of it, the Monday morning quarterback bird's eye view, but like I saw all the forks in the road and I saw like one of the, the first ones was her decision to go away from a sport she loves probably at a school, an environment of a school that probably was more conducive to who she was, like a Lehigh University in like a small town, hilly wooded area, playing soccer, a team sport to like an urban Philly, Philadelphia school in Penn and running track. Like I saw this fork in the road and I also could see her communication around that fork in the road. And it was very clear from her communication that she was aware that what she what her heart wanted was to play soccer at Lehigh. And so I say that to mean that like, so I'm, and clearly I have a judgment about that choice. I understand the choice, but I also am like noting to myself that like, I don't want to make that same choice that I'm valuing public perception over a choice more than I'm valuing my own compass. And so like, and that became the heart of the, of the decision with ESPN was recognizing that I was at a fork in the road and the decision to continue doing on-air stuff with ESPN was going to be the equivalent of like going to Penn and running track and field. I'm not saying that I would have had the same like mental, you know, lead to a depression in any way, but like it, it was like, it felt to me like a similar fork in the road. And I felt not just like I would be hypocritical to like go around and talk to kids and be like, make sure that you're, too, you know, you're making decisions that make sense for you and not make sense for what society tells you. So that was really, and, and, and just to put a, a bow on that, I think, I think there are very, I think that there are, there are moments in your, in your life where like you actually you have an amount of freedom to truly make the decision you want. I mean, I think we always have the freedom to make the decisions we want, but I think there are times in your life where you, know, you might have kids or you might have a marriage or you might have a sick parent and you don't have that same freedom to truly follow what you want and what you feel like will lead you to like this next challenge in your life. And I knew at that time, I was like, I didn't have kids. You know, I had the financial resources. So it was like this moment where I felt like I could take a chance on myself. Yeah. So it's that time of year where I'm starting to think more about travel. We are actually going to be taking some longer trips, combination of pleasure, but also to record guests on the road. And I'm always reminded how important and also how challenging it can be to keep moving my body and eating well and pretty much just maintaining all of my wellness routines when I'm on the road. So at Westin Hotels and Resorts, they have a single goal, and that is to help you travel well. In fact, they'd say it's more than just a goal. It's their entire reason for being. Their range of wellness offerings have been curated with one thing in mind, you. At Westin Hotels and Resorts, you find nutritious offerings on their new Eat Well menu, on-demand workout gear with fitness gear lending, 
and a restorative night's sleep in their heavenly bed, not to mention so much more. Because when you eat well, move well, and sleep well, you rise, no matter where in the world you travel. And that's the art of traveling well. Welcome to Weston, and welcome to wellness. Explore at weston.com, a member of Marriott Bonvoy. I mean, there, there's also another backdrop happening to all of this, which is there's, there's a beautiful thing and there's a really tough thing happening in your life. You, you fall in love, right? You, you find this person, um, like Catherine, you, you get married. So you've got this amazing relationship blossoming in your life. And then in your family with your dad, your dad gets diagnosed with ALS. Yeah. Which is like these, these two energies going in diametrically opposite directions. Did either of those or did those together along with this other backdrop that we've talking about sort yeah. of inform all of this? Yeah. Right. Cause like, just like Maddie's story, it's not like, it's like, there's one thing, right? Yeah. It was, it was a catalyst of a lot of different things. Like what I've mentioned about like this fork in the road and then just the found the foundational piece of meeting the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with gives you a lot of freedom in a lot of ways. And then you know, it, my dad's diagnosis, you know, it really shook me because I just spent so much of my life thinking that just achievement and success would, would equal happiness and that I was willing, even though they felt like small things, I was willing to like back burner relationships in pursuit of that, thinking that I would always have time to come back around to them. And then he gets this diagnosis and still relatively young at 59 years old. And, uh, and I knew that our relationship, like, which was incredibly strong in so many ways, had had some fissures in it. And all of a sudden I'm like, how can I possibly, again, going back to it, how can I possibly spend my time making predictions about the Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> when I have the most important person in my childhood is about to face one of the worst diseases of, of humanity. And like, and there are things I haven't said and there's time I haven't spent. And so that it shook me. Oh, like the first three months of his diet after his diagnosis, like I couldn't fall asleep without having a podcast in because it's like music wasn't good enough, you know, because music, you can like let your mind run to the forefront. Whereas podcasts, it's like it hijacks your mind and you just have to, you know, as our good listeners know. Um, it like, it forces you to concentrate. So. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's so interesting having this conversation with you in this moment in time, because it's so, sort of like this, it's, it's coming together of all these different things and also feels like a really moment, like a moment of a point of inflection for you and a point of, I would guess, sort of like grappling with, um, how do I want to step into this next season? Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, right now it's like, it's really, it's like, I, I know over the last couple of years since my dad's diagnosis, like I, 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 I did the, the one wonderful thing. It's not wonderful about an ALS diagnosis, but like you, you, you can sit with the person that you love and you can tell them all the things that you need to tell them, you know, and that, has been one of the greatest blessings of my life rather than if at, at age 59, he had, you know, died in a car crash. Like, I think I would have really been reeling for a very long, for obvious reasons. But then like the, the reverberations of that, I think would have lasted most of my life, not 
saying the things I wanted to say and being afraid to do it. And that doesn't exist anymore. It's like one of the greatest blessings is it's like you can do hard things like physically. And then there are the emotional hard things like sitting with someone who's dying and like being honest with them was probably the scariest thought I would have had like when I was 20, right? Like there's no way I could ever do that. But what the place I find myself in now is trying to like be okay not being defined by something else. I just find that really challenging. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm because I, I left ESPN because I wanted to write, I'm writing, but like, you know, you're, you're a writer. Like maybe two years from now, somebody will finally hold the book that I'm writing. <laughs> but, you know, I, and I find that hard. Like there's this part of me that wants to like call ESPN up and be like, maybe I can get back on TV so that I feel relevant. Um, I don't, but I'm not going to do that. But if, but like I lean that way sometimes and I'm like, no, like I have to be okay with being present for the people in my life. And I have to be okay that I don't have to always be like relevant and whatever relevant means to you. You know, I, I'm obviously more relevant to my parents now than I was like five years ago. I'm more relevant to my wife now, but that part I get, that I find that to be very hard. Yeah. I mean, that's always people talk about relevance and like um, in my mind, it's it's always like the the second half of that sentence, which is almost always left off, is like the question, which is to whom. Yeah. You know, and that's that's where the real grappling happens, and that's where the real answer comes about like how you actually want to invest your energies. So, this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So, right. hanging out here in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up this phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Well, it's very different now than it was a couple of years ago, but. Right now it's just, it's showing up for the people who've showed up for me. Like that's what I get the most really heart swell from is like I'm here for a wedding in New York and I'm not sure that five years ago, like I would have showed up for the wedding. You know, I've been like, oh, I got to hop a flight. I don't know. And it's like, but the, but over the last couple of years, I've realized like the people who showed up to my wedding, the people who showed up to the ALS walk we did two weeks ago for my dad. I'm like, it's weird how cliche, you know, the, all of the stereotypes and cliches, you're like, you get to a certain age and you start to realize that they all make the world go round. And why weren't you listening? <laughs> so yeah, showing up for people, showing up for the people who show, well, it's not like it's a quid pro quo, right? But showing up for people. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.